today. Lord God, thank you for the church. Thank you for conceiving it in your mind and your heart. Thank you for creating it through the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would um, enlarge our view today of, of you and what you're doing and what you have called us to be and to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you can take a study guide out of your worship folder there. You can follow along with us. Um, if you're new here, my name is Steve, and I'm glad to meet you. And uh, if you are new, I'm really glad that you came today because I'm going to try and explain what this church is all about. And uh, hopefully it'll help you get clear on whether or not this is the particular church where God wants you to get planted and sink down some roots and and uh, become family with the rest of us. And for you who are already new lifers, today's going to be kind of a refresher for you, I would say. Um, hopefully it'll help you get uh, re-centered, okay, on that which we already know is the most important thing in all of the universe. Here's how I want to begin. I want to ask you this question. How many of you were not raised in church? Can I see your hands? You were not raised in church. Right, quite a number of you. How many of you were raised in church? A lot of you. How many of you are kind of raised in church? <laughs> okay. It's interesting. I, I, let me ask you this. How many of you who, who spent a lot of time in church through the years have had something happen or y- you endured a hurtful experience in the church? Could I see your hands? Oh, more, more in this celebration than the last one. Okay. Have you recovered yet? Are you in process with that? It's interesting, isn't it? This thing we call the church, which is so precious to so many of us, has the potential for so much good and blessing and also the potential for so much hurt and disappointment. My own experience growing up in church was really kind of a mixed bag. Uh, When I stop to think about it, all kinds of different memories come flooding back into my mind. Some of them are joyful and happy, some are kind of embarrassing, some are disheartening, and others are kind of funny. Uh, There was a time when, as a, a youngster, I was taking communion in church, and I got this idea in my in my mind that what I was going to do is take the little wafer, the little cracker, and really chomp down hard on it to see how much of a noise it would make. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but uh, when I did that, it made a big-time noise, and everybody was, like, glaring at me, and I'm like, ooh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea after all. I remember that. Remember the time when the quarterback from the local high school, the football team, stood up during a testimony time, and he said, hey, I just want everybody to know that I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and from now on, I'm going to be living for him. And that was really cool. I remember the time that the, the girl at church that I liked left a seat open next to her so that I could come and sit by her. But I was so painfully shy that I just couldn't work up the courage to do it. And so I didn't. And my buddy, my friend, who had arranged the whole thing for me, was so ticked off at me at the end of the service. He said, you just blew your chance with that girl forever. You're done. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> There's the time when that same buddy and I, uh, we were in this church service, and we'd been kind of cutting up and laughing during the whole sermon, you know, totally oblivious to anybody else in the room, just having a good time. 
And when the service was over, the big-haired lady sitting right in front of us turned around and looked at us, glared at us, and said, do me a favor, do not ever sit behind me again. <laughs> I'm, no, yikes. Okay. <laughs> I remember uh, when I was 16, my parents decided to join a new little church plant in town. Had a young pastor, great guy, and, and he just preached his heart out. I mean, he preached with tears. He had a huge heart for Christ and for the people and just really ministered to, to our family in that new environment. I remember the night that our little youth group at that church got asked to lead an evening service. It's always a risky proposition to do that. And we came up with a brilliant plan to um, cut all the lights out and pretend to be Russian communist soldiers coming in and crashing the service and confiscating everybody's Bibles. Again, it sounded like a good idea at the time, <laughs> but um, you should probably give people a heads up when you're going to do something like that. It'll probably go better than our little escapade went. Then I remember a very heartbreaking church service I was in. It was a few years later when that same pastor, that once excited pastor, now that night looking very defeated, got up. And he said the church would likely be closing down because God just didn't seem to be in it anymore since two of the families in the church had been bickering with one another. It was just like, oh, you're killing me, you know. Like I said, my, my experience has been a mixed bag, and maybe, maybe yours has as well. Times of great hope and joy and happiness and rejoicing and crushing experiences of heartbreak and disappointment. You know what I've learned? There are no perfect churches, none. As long as churches are filled with people who are sinners, even saved sinners, there, there are going to be problems, there's going to be some issues, there's going to be some hurts and disappointments. You can count on it. And if the Lord is present, there will also be times of forgiveness and, and hope and feeling like, yeah, we're all together. We, we, we could take this city together, kind of like we felt yesterday down in Whitehall. There's going to be both. As I said, this series is about the church. It's about the, the big C, the capital C church worldwide, and it's also about this church, our church family right here, New Life Church. It's about understanding God's design and plan for his church and, and our role in it. And when I stop and think about how children and teenagers who grow up in the church can be so deeply affected by what they see and what they feel and what they hear. It makes me as a pastor want to do all I can to make sure this church is healthy and vibrant and alive and following hard after Jesus. It's about five years ago that I began to have a, a growing conviction in my heart about what needs to happen for a church to experience that health and that vitality and that aliveness. Some of you had this conviction before I did. Many others have come to embrace it since then. Here it is. It's on, on the top of your outline there. For a church to truly be what God intended, I believe the glorious gospel of Jesus must remain front and center in the life of the church. And I believe that now at the deepest core of my being. What I want to do today is try to explain that. Churches that believe that, churches that share that conviction, 
are sometimes known as gospel-driven churches or gospel-centered churches. If you go to our website, enewlife.com, you'll see New Life Church, a gospel-driven church. Maybe you've wondered, what does that mean? Let me make a few statements that I hope will clarify what I'm talking about. Many of you know this. Number one, churches can be driven by a variety of things. You churched people think back on your experience. Isn't that true? For example, some churches are driven by money. The money-driven church, I guess you could call it. These churches operate by the golden rule, which is whoever has the gold makes the rules. (laughs) It's the big givers, the big contributors who have most of the influence and power in that church by virtue of their hefty investment in the church. Some churches are driven by money. Some churches are driven by tradition. Ah, yes, tradition. Their motto is, if it's new, we're against it. (laughs) If it's different, we don't like it. Uncle Horatio would turn over in his grave if he knew that we moved the piano from one side of the platform to the other, that kind of a thing. The priority is to preserve tradition. Some churches are driven by superstar pastors who are just, you know, mega gifted and just by the sheer force of their dynamic personality and their speaking style, they can just drive the church wherever they want to. A personality-driven church, I guess you could call that. Some churches are all about their building. They're all about showcasing their building. They're very proud of all the additions that they've put onto their building through the years, and they'll tell you about, oh yeah, 1974, we added this wing, and then 1986, and they got all these pictures and stuff. It's kind of like, you know, this is, we exist to, to honor this building. Some churches are driven by a particular need in the community that they've, they've become aware of, and they've latched onto, and, and championing that need is what they've become known for, and it drives the agenda of the church. What I'm saying is that churches can become driven by any one of a number of things, many good things. It's usually true that over the entire lifespan of a church, many different priorities will kind of compete for center stage, for the spotlight in the church. In the summer of 2009, I was uh, sitting in my home in my rocking chair, which I love to do, and uh, I had my laptop open. I was watching a sermon online by a guy named D.A. Carson. You ever heard of him? Smart man. He's actually coming here this fall for a conference. And um, as I watched that, that sermon online, I was struck by a bolt of lightning, figuratively speaking. <laughs> I was jolted awake by what I was hearing. He was preaching on the centrality of the gospel of Jesus, and he read these verses from 1 Corinthians, where Paul wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Carson made the point of underscoring that little phrase of first importance. And he asked the question on this sermon that I'm watching online, how many things can be of first importance 
My mind worked feverishly to come up with the answer. And I thought, one. And he said, only one thing can be of first importance. There is only one thing that is so central to the heart of God that he calls it of first importance. And what is that one thing? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sure in that moment I did not fully comprehend all of the ramifications of that and everything that that meant, but I did understand this. God was making it very clear to me, as he had already made clear to others in this church, that he wants the gospel of Jesus Christ front and center in the life of this church. There are many other things that we could focus on as a church that would all be good. But I realized in that moment that what the Lord was impressing upon my heart was this, that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Other good things have their place for sure, but none of those other things, even those good things, should be allowed to displace the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified from center stage in this church. We believe. We've come to believe that's the Lord's calling for us. Now, many good things arise from that, but that's the centerpiece. And so number two, the result of that is that new life has been on this journey of seeking to become a gospel-driven church. Now, sometimes when I meet people who are visiting here and checking out new life, they they say, hey, I see that you're a non-denominational church here at new life. Does that mean that you don't like other people? (laughs) I say... No, no, that doesn't mean that. We, we have a great relationship with the other Jesus-loving, Bible-preaching and teaching churches in our community here in Gehanna. We have a great relationship with them. We're part of our own little network of churches. I tell them that now we probably identify most closely with this gospel-centered church movement. We feel a kinship with like-minded churches, such as those that we find in organizations like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel. In our conception, gospel-driven or gospel-centered refers to a church where the leadership and the people are deliberate and intentional about keeping Jesus Christ front and center in the life of the church. Such that the gospel becomes the dominant shaper of the culture of the church and the driving force behind all of its teachings, ministries, outreaches, programs, and decisions. Now, all of this gospel talk begs the question, what is the gospel? What is this thing that's supposed to be in the center? What what is this main thing that gospel-driven churches are seeking to keep in the spotlight? Well, a summary of it is there on number three, the gospel you know this, is the message of Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross, like we just sang, lead me to the cross. That work that was sealed by his empty tomb. Without question, the main thing in God's heart and mind is that his son Jesus became willing to come to earth to take on a robe of human flesh, to live a perfect life, then be brutally executed, to die in our place, right, for our sins as our substitute, be buried in a cold tomb, and then three days later, kick death in the teeth by rising from the grave. 
That is the core of the gospel. Those events are not secondary. They're not peripheral. They're central to the heart and mind of God. They are never to be assumed. They are of first importance, Paul wrote. Central to God's heart and his plan. Now, a few years ago, we put together a team of five or six men, spent six months and put together a little pamphlet that describes our understanding of the main truths of the gospel. We actually put one in your worship folder today. So would you reach in there and pull out this little shiny green pamphlet? I hope you got one. It says, The gospel, very good news for a very fallen race from a very gracious creator. And we decided to give you one of these today. This was our attempt to get really clear on, on, on the essential truths of the gospel. Now, there is not just one right way to share the gospel. There are not... There's not just one correct formulation of the gospel. The Bible uses many different metaphors and approaches, but our goal as as a team was to try to distill that down into the the main truths of the gospel. And We're not going to read through the whole thing, but what I'd like to do is, um, to all of us together, read through the the headers at the top, the big print. Um, There's eight panels there, just to refresh our minds of what the key truths of the gospel are. Okay, so you ready? Number one, first panel, gospel truth number one, what is it? The eternal God created heaven and earth and everything in them. That's part of the gospel, that God made everything. Number two, God made everything for his own pleasure and glory. One reason I love this pamphlet is it presents a God-centered view of the gospel. That God made everything for his own glory, his own pleasure. Number three, all of humanity has sinned. Failing to glorify God supremely. That's the truth about our race, isn't it? Number four, kind of the apex of the bad news. Guilty of great sin, we all stand condemned before a holy God. Now, the reason I like this pamphlet is it presents the bad news, which makes the good news sound really good. So I'm glad the pamphlet doesn't end there. It keeps going as the Bible's story does. Number five. Let's read it together. God's great heart of love graciously made a way for guilty sinners to be saved. Aren't you glad of that? How did that happen? Number six, God's saving plan required sending his son Jesus to earth to die for our sins. That's the core of it, the substitutionary death of Christ for us. Number seven, God raised Jesus from the dead fully satisfied with his sacrifice. And then what is our response? What does the gospel call us to do? Number eight, all who truly repent of their sin, trusting only in Christ's sacrifice, receive all the gifts of the gospel. In parentheses, including full pardon, righteousness, joy in God, eternal life, and we ran out of space. You know, I would have added a hundred other things there. Those are the essential truths of the gospel. Amen? That's that's the message that must remain as the centerpiece of this church, of first importance. Well, here's an interesting point about this gospel. Number four, the gospel can be seen as the third way. What do you mean by that? Well, the scriptures consistently acknowledge that humans tend to try to seek salvation or their concept of salvation through two different pathways. 
two paths that people take to try to attain fulfillment and freedom and acceptance and approval, to live a heavenly life and avoid a hellish existence, whatever that might, they might conceive of in their minds as that, that being. Two ways. We've talked about this before. One is religion or keeping the rules. Religious rule-keeping, we could call it moralism. And that's the person who says, well, I, I, I am going to try to gain God's favor and get him to accept me and like me by trying my very best to be good, to do the right thing, to keep the laws of God. That's called religion, right? That's, that's man trying to reach up to God and, and get God to accept him. That's one way. The other way we could call not rule-keeping, but rule-breaking. <laughs> this is the way of the rebel, right? The rebel who says, well, I'm my own man. I, I'm going to be my own authority. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to cast off all restraints and be free. Over here, this is the way of, 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 of the Pharisee, right? The religious Pharisee. This is the way of the older brother in the parable of the two sons. This is the way of the busy sister. This is the way of the, the proud Pharisee who is praying, God, I'm so thankful that you didn't make me like that guy. This is religious rule-keeping. But over here, this is, this is the way of the prodigal son. This is the way of the rebel. This is the way of the, the young man who says, give me what's coming to me. I'm going to go do what I want. I'm going to find freedom as the master of my own fate. I don't need a God telling me what to do or parents or whatever. The rebel exalts personal, individual autonomy and freedom. That's religion. This is irreligion. Right? That's moralism. This is secularism. Two ways, two paths that people try to gain salvation, acceptance, freedom, fulfillment, approval. You know what the problem is? They both fail miserably. They do. People who are on this religious kick, this religious path, you know what happens to them? One of two things. They either get proud, like I'm really cutting it, you know, I'm something, I'm something. And they start feeling superior to other people. And they start being judgmental and condemning in their heart and their mind. Because they feel like I'm measuring up. Or they feel despair. Like I, I can't do it, I can't do it. And of course, God rejects people who come to him, handing him their resume, right, of why they deserve to be saved. It fails. But this fails also. Rebellious rule-breaking also fails. You know what happens to these folks, the, the prodigals who go their own way and do their own thing? You know what they often leave in their wake uh, is a littered path of bad decisions, broken lives, guilt, shame, and sometimes they end up thinking, I've done so much junk, I wonder if God would even cast a glance my way. All this freedom and fulfillment I was promised over here didn't really happen. It didn't really fill up the emptiness of my life. There needs to be a third way. And the gospel is the third way. Say, how so? Because the gospel tells us that all humans are more sinful than they ever dared to admit, but they're also more deeply loved than they ever dared to imagine. Both. The gospel both humbles us before God and exalts us. 
The gospel reveals that mankind is incapable of living up to God's holy standards and is therefore condemned in his sin. However, the gospel also tells us that God loves humanity. And as a result, he chose to meet his own standards on their behalf while paying for their sins at great cost to himself. In other words, you've heard me say this before, what the gospel demands, the gospel delivers. The result is that the gospel humbles the moralist by declaring that he could never be good enough to earn God's favor, and it gives hope to the rebel by declaring that he could never be bad enough to be out of reach of God's grace. Listen to me. The message of the gospel to the world is not behave. You better behave better. The message of the gospel to the world is behold and believe. Behold the risen Christ and believe in him. We're not just simply trying to foist morality upon the world, are we? Try to get lost people to live like Christians? Futile, futile. Now listen to me, the gospel does promote morality. The gospel does promote obedience. But not as a duty or some kind of obligation to please God or get something back from Him, gain some kind of reward. It motivates obedience out of a grateful heart. It gives rise to morally upright behavior that flows from the new affections of a transformed heart so that you want to live in a way that pleases God. You delight in the Lord and in His law like David did in the Old Testament, right? I delight in your law. And that's different. That's different than grinding out morality every day. I guess I got to not do all those fun things anymore now that I'm a Christian. That's not it. The freedom offered by the gospel The rebel needs to hear this, the prodigal. The freedom offered by the gospel is liberation from the self-focused life. This is all about, you know, getting my needs met, me feeling good about myself. The gospel liberates you from that so that you can serve a new and better master, gracious one. Can you see where the, that the gospel succeeds where the two ways fail? The gospel is God's idea, God's promise, God's plan, it's for God's glory. The gospel is the third way, a better way. It's the only way. It's the only way that anyone can be accepted by God. This next one was a a revelation to me. It was new. Number five, both non-Christians and Christians need to hear the gospel. Now, of course I knew that non-Christians need to hear the gospel. I mean, that's how you get saved, right? You hear the gospel, you believe it, and God brings you into his family. I knew that, but I was taught that after once you were saved, you kind of left that behind and you moved on to bigger and better things. But I don't believe that anymore. I believe that Christians need to regularly hear what God has done for them in Christ. That's a, that was a newer thought to me. Came out of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul started, but I remind you, brothers of the gospel, that I preached to you before. I'm telling it to you again and again and again because you need to hear it. 
In God's design, Christ uses the gospel message to produce in our hearts fruit as it sinks deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts and sinks its roots down into us, it bears the fruit of faith and hope and love. Those things come from believing the gospel. You know, apart from that, apart from regularly hearing and meditating and singing about what Christ has done for us, the Christian life just kind of gets reduced to moralism, just trying to grind out the Christian life, right? Be a good person. Listen, the gospel is the engine that has sufficient horsepower to power the Christian life. The gospel is the seed that produces the spiritual fruit. It's the pattern for Christian discipleship. It's the incentive for glad obedience. Why would I not want to obey Christ? He laid down his life for me. So like Paul, around here in this church, we seek to regularly preach the gospel to each other and to ourselves that we can be full of what God has done for us in Christ. Number six, believe this, when Jesus and his gospel are at the center, a beautiful community will be formed. Here's an insightful statement. I wish I'd thought of it, but I got it from Brian Chapel in his book, Christ-Centered Worship. He said this, the gospel shapes its containers. That's, that's pretty rich, isn't it? The gospel shapes its containers. It has that kind of power. So think about on an individual, personal level. The, the gospel, believed by me, contained in me now, shapes how I view myself. It shapes my very identity, doesn't it? It alters how I see myself. It declares that as God's people, we are neither better than others, like the religious moralist thinks, oh, I'm better than you, nor are we condemned losers. God would never even want to look at me. But it tells us this, when we believe on, upon him, we become God's saints, servants, sons and daughters, worshipers, disciples, and missionaries. It changes our identity. It shapes its containers. The gospel shapes how we see ourselves, and of course that changes our lives. Because we live out of our self-perception, don't we? If you're always thinking, I'm a loser, you're going to end up making decisions like a loser would. If you're thinking, I'm a son or a daughter of God, I'm a saint. Now, we still sin, but that's not our primary identity. Our primary identity is what God says is true about us now. Saints, servants, sons, worshipers, disciples, missionaries. Gospel changes how we see ourselves, but that's not all. As a congregation, a church of Christians increasingly centers itself on the gospel, that same message will also shape and form the life of the church. Changes not only how I see me, it changes how I see you and how you relate to each other. Say, how so? Well, when once, perhaps, there was harsh judgmental intolerance the gospel promotes grace and kindness because that's how god treats us in christ where there was once constant irritation with people who are different than us the gospel produces patience 
Why? Because God showed me patience by not casting me into hell when that's what I deserved. How can I not be patient with you or you with each other? Where once we felt the need to always be protecting our image, you know, polishing our image, image management, where once that was a compulsion by, by, by hiding ourselves behind those fig leaves, pretending we were better than we really were, the gospel tells us that we were so bad that the Son of God had to die for our sins, but since the worst about us has already been put on public display, we're now free to be open with each other about our flaws and sins and shortcomings and give our reputation to Him. Have you ever done that? God, you take my reputation. What people think about me, you take care of all that. I'm not going to focus on that anymore. I'm just going to focus on Jesus. And that's liberating. The gospel creates this community of openness so that we're even confessing our sins and faults to each other. And it's okay. There's no condemnation because Jesus took our condemnation. Where once we held on to offenses and nursed our grudges against each other, now realizing that God has forgiven us of so much, we're empowered by the gospel to forgive people who hurt us and cancel that you owe me that we've been holding over their heads. Let it go. Where once we were all wrapped up in ourselves, focused on getting other people to meet our needs, the gospel shows us a king who laid down his life for his subjects, yea, even his enemies. Having no thought of himself, putting their well-being ahead of his own, and we have his spirit living in us so that we can place others ahead of ourselves and give them the priority and serve them. Isn't that the kind of church family you want to be a part of? <laughs> it sure is for me. Full of grace, kindness, patience, openness, repentance, forgiveness, priority, and service. That is the fruit of a gospel-driven church. Where Jesus is being given center stage, his rightful place, front and center all the time, it's a beautiful thing. And things will happen in a gospel-driven church, like my wife was telling me about last weekend going to um, down here to the middle school west to the parking lot for this little kind of impromptu event. Uh, there was a single mom in our church who has been having all kinds of issues and you know, things have happened and, and she was without a car and um, her small group, she's in a small group and, and her small group, unbeknownst to her, started pooling some resources and making some contacts and at that little gathering at middle school last week and my wife showed up at, they gave her a van. And uh, a TV station ended up somehow getting there and filming that. And my wife said, you know, this, this gal was just like a blubbering mess, you know, and everybody was weeping. And it's beautiful. You know, in a church that's keeping Jesus front and center, stories like that are going to become more and more commonplace the work of his Holy Spirit in us. And a watching world will marvel at a Savior who is so good, so good. Well, as I finish, I got, I got three points of application for you, okay, that I want to challenge you with. One is three ways. Religion, make it happen, behave, Try to earn God's acceptance. Rebellion, break the rules, be my own person, 
seek freedom on my own, be autonomous. The third way is the way of the cross. A God who loved you so much that he died for you. You ever accepted that? Or are you on one of these other two paths trying to find freedom and fulfillment and meaning in your life? Oh, I would urge you and challenge you to take the third way. It's the only way. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, the Bible says. Don't wait. Don't wait. Second point of application is uh, share this with somebody. That's why we gave it to you. Someone who needs to hear the good news. A couple weeks ago, I walked through this with a, a guy here and we finished up with that eighth gospel truth and I said just so tell me is this all review have you heard this all before or is there some of this that's new and he said I haven't heard most of that before I said really let's talk about that he ended up emailing me a few weeks later and said I I'm there I gave my life to Jesus share it with somebody at work at school someone you have coffee with or hang out with and then third guess my question is for you to ponder is is are, are you all in are you all in with christ with with our church here and if not what's holding you back what's what's the blockage what's preventing you from being all in say well i just feel so dirty i just i've done so much junk and we talked about that right the this guy over here you can't do anything that's so bad that puts you outside of the reach of the grace of Christ. He, he didn't say, clean up your life. He didn't say, be more like that guy and then come to me. He says, come. You just come. He said, I've been one of these guys. You know, I'm kind of like looking down my nose at other people thinking I'm hot stuff. Well, you need to repent. <laughs> repent of your arrogant pride. Bow your knee to King Jesus. Let him be your Lord and Savior. What's holding you back? What's, what's preventing you from being all in? That's my challenge for you this morning. So, Lord, we've said a lot today, and, um, but I pray that you would cause to stick in people's hearts the things that you want them to walk away with. I thank you so much for being a God who loves people, who gave your only begotten son to come and live and die and rise again so that we might know you and have eternal life and be with you forever. I thank you, I thank you that you form people like that into little communities, little churches, and where you want your gospel message to remain central and then, and then there's fruit that's born from that and it's not the result of human effort and we don't get any credit but it's your work in us and, it, and it's a ripple effect and it, it changes people and sweeps more people into your family. Lord, may that be true of us. May we have a white hot passion and a laser focus for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, never... Allow your son to be displaced from his rightful position as our primary passion and main obsession and deepest love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Well, uh, stand with me, would you? And our prayer partners are here. And I would especially encourage you, if, you've, if there's something in your heart that's been kind of holding you back from being all in with Christ or all in with our church here, come and let one of these folks pray with you and, and get, get some insight into that and, and maybe even get freed up from that, okay? So take advantage of that as we worship together.